Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Coaches Corner University podcast. I am Paul Oneid, your host, and I would count episode numbers, but it's just another thing for me to keep track of, and I don't want to do it, nor do I think people care. So this episode, as always, is sponsored by Master Athletic Performance, and I am here today with one of our Master Athletic Performance coaches, Mike Providza. Um Fun fact, I actually met Mike a very long time ago in 2015 when I was working as a strength coach at Queen's University. He was finishing his undergrad and it has been a long, I remember back then you were a natural bodybuilder and had no interest in competing in powerlifting. Fast forward to a few national championships and competitions at the world level and now returning to bodybuilding pretty, pretty much come full circle. So thanks for coming on the podcast and happy to have you. Thanks for having me, man. Uh, yeah, looking forward to it. Looking forward to putting some more good information out there as we've been doing. And just to make us both feel old, we actually met in 2013, not 15. Oh fuck. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> so it's been 10 a years in a decade. Yeah. 10 years. That's fucking cool. Um, so yeah, maybe give people a little bit of an idea into how you got in, like, why'd you start training and what that path has looked like from its inception? Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, potted bio summary of me as an athlete um, is I began just a very athletic but undersized uh, individual growing up for context, like I graduated high school at like 130 pounds soaking wet, um, at five foot 11. Right. So not a big dude. Um, I was a hockey and a football player, uh, both at a pretty high level. Um, and when those came to their natural conclusion at post-secondary, as it does for many individuals, most, uh, most individuals, I was looking for the next athletic pursuit. Right. And that's when I found drug-free bodybuilding. Um, and it was a simple equation from the fact that I realized in my time, you know, training for hockey, training for football, I enjoyed the process of training in the gym equally, if not more than the process of competing on the field. Right. And I actually posted about this on Instagram the other day about how I've always been kind of a very autonomous athlete. I gravitate towards, you know, single player kind of sports, even when I played uh, group sports, hockey and football being predominantly the, the group sports. Um, you know, I, I was a goaltender in hockey. So the closest thing to an individual position and I was a quarterback in football, the closest thing to an individual position. So um, I competed in natural bodybuilding exclusively in for two comp competitive seasons. So two preps across four total shows. This was in 2012 and 2013. Okay. Uh, so over a decade ago. Uh, came actually one point away from a natural pro card, um, but just wasn't meant to be in that prep and that's cool. Uh, and that's when I sort of found powerlifting and this is right around the time that you and I met, I mm. was coming into an off season in kind of 2013, 14 of what I wanted to be an extended multi-year off season because progress doesn't move quickly as, as a drug-free athlete. Um, at that point I'm, you know, I'm north of five years training experience. So an intermediate already, I, uh, took up the powerless as a means of like a lot of people do just something to keep me adherent and honest that has mm -hmm. a quantifiable progress, uh, in an extended off season. And I fell in love with it. Right. It kind of took on a life of its own. That's how I've explained it to you in the past that, you know, mm -hmm. I, I was a naturally, you know, well-suited athlete to strength sports, um, you know, kind of pound for pound, one of the stronger kids kind of grown up. Uh, and, then I, for the next kind of eight or nine years, didn't look back, right? Powerlifting dominated my life as an athlete. I competed in something like 15 competitions across, you know, eight years. I competed, I won two Canadian national championships, both in the junior and open category, 83 kilo. For context, I was a IPF lifter, 83 and 93 kilo were the two classes I competed in. Uh, over the course of that time, I set eight Canadian records, deadlift in total being the kind of uh, the the two specialties of mine. I'm certainly a, a deadlift specialist um, with, you know, my limbs and proportions. Also competed for about a period of five of those eight or nine years at the international level on Team Canada, uh, both at 
IPF Worlds, North Americans, and a handful of other international events. Uh, highlights there were a bronze medal at IPF Worlds in the deadlift and a gold medal at North Americans in total overall. Mm-hmm. Um, and recently, as you know well, Paul, in the last kind of year, uh, year and a half, uh, COVID kind of brought this upon me. You know, I I was naturally, I really do, and maybe we can get into this over the course of this podcast, yeah. I really do look at powerlifting as, you know, ideally having a career just like any other athletic pursuit. Like in most other sports, people retire, right? right. Um, and though you certainly don't need to retire, I certainly felt like I was in my sunset years of powerlifting, just from the perspective of, you know, doing this for so long, I was well, it was no illusion to me under what level of stress I had to put my body to eke out another five pounds of progress on the bar. And I basically at that point had to more or less organize my life around the barbell to progress. And that was just something that was becoming a little less and less appealing to me over time. And with COVID canceling all of competitions for effectively two years, um, I tried twice to compete during that time and both got canceled. This is especially tricky for me because most of my competitions occurred as travel meets in an international level, right? Mm-hmm. So when those are canceled, that's off the shelf, right? So um, that just naturally found me swinging the pendulum back towards more hypertrophy-centric training. Um, and I had been planning on it for a while, but now I'm well deep 15 weeks into a bodybuilding contest prep after a very successful year-long offseason. Um, and I'm just a little over seven weeks out from my first bodybuilding show in almost a decade, which I'm sure we're going to get into to some degree. Yeah. And I think there's a lot, a lot we can pull out of that. And I empathize and relate greatly to the idea of organizing your life around the barbell in order to make progress. Cause that's essentially the reason why I stepped away as well. Yeah. You know, the accumulated, we'll call it mileage on the body to the point where the way I had to train in order to get stronger, number one, wasn't enjoyable. And the way I had to feel in the hours outside the gym in order to progress just wasn't enjoyable either. So if I'm not having fun with this anymore, in my opinion, like my values don't like, I'm not in a place where I can make money at it or it's adding to the business in any way anymore. So it's okay to step away. And I found a new way of training that I can still get the same enjoyment out of. I can still get the same, uh, you know, catharsis, so to speak, from struggle. And it's a new challenge for me. Uh, And in a lot of ways, even though you've done it before, it's been a new challenge for you stepping back into this world of, you know, externally stabilized movements for the most part. and looking at different ways to do it. And I think when we do that, for me, at least it was a light bulb moment to say, there's so much I still have to learn, but there's also still so much that I can carry forward from what I've done already. So maybe speak to that a little bit, like how, how maybe the training lessons that you've learned over the years, what you previously held true, what some maybe misconceptions or, uh, limiting beliefs you had that kind of are broken down. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, like we are at a very similar point in our athletic careers. And I think that's no fluke. It's because we both been at this a very similar time scale at a similar level. Right. And so, you know, the idea of organizing your life around a barbell is a very real one. And you brought up a really good point, which is sort of how you feel. My my dog Bella says hi, but uh, (laughs) I don't know if you can hear that, but you know, how you feel in the intervening moments between training is a huge deal. And you and I both know that when you've been at this north of a decade, especially in a barbell centric capacity, you have been doing repetitive movements that have a specific strain on a very acute targeted set of tissues that, and like that there's a lot of miles on these joints and, um, and connective tissues and every input of volume that it requires for you and us to even you and I to even have a chance at getting stronger. Like it's no guarantee. You can do almost everything right and not get stronger at a certain level of advancement. I was certainly there and every input of volume is very taxing and very damaging. So, um, you know, you can do less, it hurts more, it's, it's more risk. And for me, like I said, that kind of cost benefit didn't really jive anymore. And so, 
I found myself trending towards, like you said, more externally stabilized movements, but it also ignited a love for training like that I hadn't felt in a handful of years. And it's not like I detested training. It was more that training just became akin to brushing my teeth. There wasn't a lot of new news in the mix, right? Um, And when you get there in that way for too long, you can one, create self-limiting beliefs, but also two, kind of not get dogmatic, but get kind of funneled into a very, uh, you know, prototypical way of training where you don't experiment a whole lot, right? You just kind of, you just kind of stay in your lane as it were. And you you find what works, you find what works and and you kind of have to stick to it. And I I totally agree there. Like for me, I don't want to do singles every week, but that's all I literally could do. Exactly. And it's like the, unfortunately the stuff that elicited a good response for us or gave us a good chance at staying in one piece and getting a response was often the least, like the least exciting thing for us at that time. Right. Like, and so for me, bodybuilding is just naturally going to have a lot more degrees of freedom than a powerlifting, right. In terms of the selection, the, the library of movements that you will use over the course of the week, how that volume is distributed across those handful of movements how much experimentation that you can and should do over the in shorter time scales. Obviously, with barbells, you zoom out and and stuff like that. But there will be big points in. That's not to say that bodybuilding isn't monotonous too. It certainly is. Oh, for sure. But for sure, like you should find your bread and butter movements and you should run them into the ground for anybody watching these things. But but with a powerlifting, like it's about predictability at, above all else. It's about like when you prep for a competition, you want a predictable performance on a specific day doing, you know, load within a couple key, like within a percentage point of what you put on paper for that day kind of thing. And bodybuilding is just so different from that. And so I found, you know, advanced biomechanics was a huge thing for me to kind of dig my teeth into. Cause I'm a very compulsive, voracious learner. You know, I'm the kind of guy who for better or worse, sometimes worse, after a 12 hour workday, my idea of relaxation is hopping on the couch, putting up, pulling up YouTube or, you know, something like that and learning some more like that, that, that when I'm like obsessed with a topic, I'm obsessed with a topic and bodybuilding facilitated that for me. It, it let me find new avenues to resistance training that I never pursued to that level of depth. And Paul, you know me after, pretty well after a decade, like I'm a pretty nerdy dude. I like to get right into the weeds. You're a nerd. For sure. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And and proudly one, right? Like, uh, and, and you know, it, it's it's been a great tool in my toolbox for my career. It's helped me get the piece of paper hiding behind my head. And, yeah. you know, it's been, and I just like learning. And so for me, bodybuilding has facilitated learning again and being, you know, a student at a sport again and, you know, a student and instructor at the same time, right? Because now I am swinging that pendulum back towards a lot of the clients that I coach are, are hybrid or dual athletes, whether they compete in both a physique and a strength sport, good handful of them do, or whether they just are lifestyle clients with aspirations similarly weighted across both of those disciplines. Like me getting inside out lean again, me getting exotically lean, as I like to call it. And you love that term. It was a great term. Um, me getting exotically lean and, you know, pushing myself, like go in there for the first time in a decade, like I've pushed myself that to put that I've torn everything from my nose to my toes. Tearing muscles is apparently a skill of yours and mine. Yeah. It's fantastic. But it's just the best, but I hadn't gotten inside out lean in a while, right. A, a long while. And so pushing myself in that way allows me to, you know, improve my process as a coach, empathize, empathize with my clients more in, in all ways. It was the perfect timing for me to uh, embark on bodybuilding again. And, in the process, I found something I love so much that I'm all in on this for the next five to seven years. Yeah. And there's the the big take-home piece for me that I think is is really applicable across the board when it comes to coaches, especially, is we all want to be the product of our product, right? We all, all want to be showcasing the same level of pursuit of excellence that we not only expect from our clients, but that they want for themselves, Right. We have to be the example for which they're shooting for. And that doesn't mean that we have to be the best in the world or or world champions or pro card winners or whatever, but we do need to be pursuing 
excellence. We do need to be pursuing our personal best. And the idea that you can become a beginner after 15 years of training is one that is incredibly appealing because it allows you to further demonstrate that you're willing to put in the work to the, to the clients that you're working with, but also to yourself to put in the work, to say, I'm a beginner at this. I'm at the bottom of the totem pole again. Like, you know, you've been an, you've been to IPF worlds competed the best of the best. I've been at some of the biggest pro money meets. I've been ranked in the top 10 all time. I am a terrible bodybuilder, but I'm a, I'm a, I would say the word I use is average, but just to give you a little touch of credit. I appreciate that. Um, I'm a, I'm a, a very lean refrigerator. Um, that you are. <laughs> so for me to, to step away and, and become a beginner has, has actually expanded my toolbox quite a bit. Because as you mentioned, the majority of the people that come to us, like when I was competing in powerlifting, yeah, for the most part, I coached exclusively powerlifters. Yeah. But as I've gone, as I've gotten more expertise, I have some competitive bodybuilders that I coach. I have some, uh, you know, dual sport athletes that, that want to be strong, but also want to have aspirations of looking good in their singlets and, you know, looking good at the beach. And that's the majority of people. They want to look good and be capable. So if I have the expertise now to get exotically lean and I have the expertise to get incredibly strong and I'm able to put that together in a, in a framework that makes sense. And then I have the experience to adapt it to the individual. Now my toolbox becomes incredibly robust simply by me trying new things and being a beginner in new things. And I think that's, yeah. that's what you saw for sure. Um, and I think what you're seeing now, especially as you get into, uh, I think it's as you get into the fact that you're a bigger dude now, yeah, bigger dude, and the changes that your body will go through throughout a prep. Yeah. Um, I remember the, the most stark thing for me was I started my prep at about 200, we'll say, we'll say 250 pounds to round up. So I lost 30 pounds, but my deadlift belt went from being in the middle of the rungs to no longer fitting anymore. Yeah. So I was like, and you're still a fridge. <clears throat> yeah. And I'm still a fridge. And I'm like, how is this possible that my body is changing in these ways? Yeah. And then I'm moving so differently. Yeah. And it was, it, it was like, okay, well, how do I adjust to this? It's a wild thing that, and this is, it's actually a great point is I was going to bring up sort of size wise for context for like those listening. I'm five foot 11 ish on a good day. Powerlifting sort of helped Shrunk you down. <laughs> me down to five, 10 and a half. Uh, it actually brought me down to five, 10 and I'm rebounding a little bit. Um, but I right now at seven weeks out, I'm about 224 pounds peak off season 250. So um, that's kind of the context of what we're looking at here for me. But, you know, as an, you know, drug-free bodybuilder in my very early 20s or at 20 years old, uh, I'm also quite a tall, like by 5'11 standards, I got like a six foot three, four wingspan. I'm a human crane, hence why the 700 plus pound deadlift. Um, you know, I, you know, on stage, I'm, I'm a longer limbed guy. And so People on stage were like, you're going to need some serious time to fill out yeah, those leverages, yeah. right? But at 30, very different equation, right? Starting to fill in those leverages, looking like, uh, and thought that I would forever be a better strength athlete than physique athlete. You give me a decade of hard powerlifting and training to fill in the gaps. And all of a sudden, my thesis on that might have inverted. I actually think long-term my ceiling for bodybuilding might even be higher than as a powerlifter or similar equivalent as a powerlifter. And that's me coming from the context of I competed on a world level in powerlifting, right? You're also your uh, worst, you're also your worst critic. Totally. Yeah. So but uh you know it took real time to fill in these leverages. So I think I needed the time away from the stage. And and also, you know, the amount that I learned in that time frame that I'm now applying to a seamless prep for those listening. I'm self-coaching myself through this competition prep, my first in a decade, which is not a common thing. And no. we can kind of get into how that looks, but so far it's been a very successful through the first two thirds prep and relatively, you know, on track pain-free process. Of course, I 
have a handful of people, Paul included, who I trust and sort of consult with on a like odds and ends questions basis along the way. And if you self-coach, I highly recommend doing that. Um, you know, but like I've just have so many more tools in my toolbox from a year of pushing my body to extremes, a year of or 10 years, sorry, of, of filling in my leverages and tissues. And from your earlier topic, like a bulk of my clients have hybrid ambitions. So it would be remiss of me not to sort of challenge those systems of me being a product of my own product again for the first time in a while. Like north of 50% of my clients are both, you know, hybrid athletes in some capacity. They have strength and they have physique ambitions to some relatively similar clip of interest. Mm-hmm. And it's actually, um, I pulled it up while you were chatting. The, the quote I used to kind of, say this, it's sort of like a get there once, stay there forever type of quote. It's actually John Mayer said it is like, everyone who starts out needs to have their work represent their abilities, the extent or totality of their abilities, or else they may not make it. Your work almost has to be a sampler of what you're capable of doing so that you can possibly wedge your name into people's mind. So basically, you know, when you're early on in your career, and you're trying to, especially if you're trying to build a career in the fitness space mm-hmm. and be a coach and be a product of your product, you, your first highlight reel better be like your greatest hits, right? Oh, it's yeah. all out, but you don't need to stay at 4% body fat to be able to successfully coach a client. Nor, like you said, you need to be in the top 0.1% of pros because oftentimes the EQ that is necessary to coach doesn't always come along for the ride with a very selfish pursuit of being the best bodybuilder in the planet, right? But you got to get, you got to prove that you can go there and you can get there. You don't have to stay there, right? And so kind of powerlifting for me is that's kind of where I'm at with powerlifting is right now on any given day, I can walk in the gym tomorrow and pull 650 to 700 pounds any given day, right? Mm -hmm. So on almost no input of volume, I can maintain 90 to 95% of my peak strength right? It's just now I'm driving, I'm allowing myself to drive slow enough so that I can look out the window and enjoy the view a little bit. Primarily from a strength perspective, enjoy the view through the fruits of my client's labor, not my own, but while I get bone shredded in the process. It's a really, I mean, I think it's a valuable discussion to have, especially in in the context of like, we always have to be using ourselves as guinea pigs to some extent. Because that's how we learn. And I was, I self-coached through the majority of my powerlifting career. And it wasn't until I I started amassing the injuries that I started reaching out for help. And that was simply because I didn't have the expertise to deal with it. Uh, Now that I do, you know, like now that I do, and I'm able to help others through those processes because I've been through them myself. Uh, But I think that calls into, into question one of the like one of the intriguing parts of this is we've both used this, we'll call it second career as a means to extend our ability to pursue this thing. Yeah. And so ability, ability and desire. Yes, for sure. And ability and desire. So there's a lot of directions we could go with the idea of being a dual sport athlete and how that could potentially benefit your longevity um, and I do the, the thing that pops up into my mind is, yeah, you took 10 years off in between the stage and you did powerlifting, which most people would be like, well, powerlifting is not going to put a significant amount of muscle on you and blah, 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 blah. Could you have taken those 10 years and done hypertrophy specific training and eaten like a crazy person and gained more tissue? Maybe, yeah. maybe. I'm not going to say yes or no, because we don't know, but would it have shortened your bodybuilding career had you done that? It would already be over. Exactly. As I just said, I'm I'm all in for the next five to seven. I already know what the end of my likely bodybuilding runway is, and that's not age related. It's like, I've only got that many years of, uh, I'm all in on what it takes now to be a high level road to pro going for pro bodybuilder. So a decade, I would have already been out of this sport before 30, likely. Yeah. And and I think about that a lot. I think about like, you know, I feel like the life cycle for a single sport athlete, probably in the, uh, competing at a high level, 
the number that gets thrown around the most is like 10 years. Yeah. On the like high. You, you can pursue any like anything to a high level for about 10 years. But a lot of people forget they'll people will talk about, you know, their health. People will talk about orthopedics. People will talk about all the different like physical things that happen with training. But I think the conversation is like, what about your career? What about your family? Like you're married. And I know you guys have family aspirations. So it's like that stuff has to factor into this competitive timeline. Usually like um, it was probably the single biggest factor that pulled me away from powerlifting is just, you know, and I don't want to for those maybe who listen to this and have interest in strength sports, including competitive powerlifting don't be dissuaded by the fact that I'm saying that like, you know, powerlifting in a nine to five don't necessarily mix. That's not what I'm saying because what I was doing was not the same as what somebody who a father of three or a mother of three, you know, that wants to just get stronger, maybe do a handful of local meets. That's a very different equation from competing internationally. My, and you've heard me say this, Paul, before many times, and including a recent seminar we hosted, which is at the highest level, competing is not about health, right? Or well-being. Or well, yeah, in any way. But I include that, yeah, in the health umbrella, of course. Yeah. But the key words in that phrase is at the highest level. How I had to organize my life around the barbell. The inputs that it took to get better were very different from what it looked like five, seven, nine years prior, right? And the outputs or tax it cost on my body was also a lot higher. So as I was accumulating personal commitments in my life, you know, house, family, job commitments, et cetera, you know, the the organizing my day around a three-hour training session that I feel hungover with uh, basically at the, at the culmination of became more and more deleterious to my well-being overall, then, you know, the context of hypertrophy training sessions can be a lot less, I mean, if you design them well, they can be a lot less systemically demanding. They're shorter in nature, right? Um, You can, like, they're more naturally inclined to be organized around a high burn life. And for context, while I was competing internationally for those periods of years, I was working a very high burn management consulting engineering job while coaching concurrently. So I was working about 60 hours average week uh, at my job, coaching 20, 25 additional hours on top of that. So we're talking 80 hour work weeks. We're talking two and a half hour training sessions times five a week. Mm-hmm. Not a lot of time left in the day for life pursuits, hobbies, family, dog, outside of that. And on top of all of that, I was traveling between 50 and 150 days a year in hotel. So like it made for a quite a tortuous lifestyle in terms of always training in a different space, not in your like home environment, which those variables become very important at a high level. Right. And so there's, there's definitely in my situation, a bias towards the, the, the ultra, like the high level competitor. The last point, I guess I'll mention here and Paul, I'll let you kind of, uh, wax lyrical on this as well, because you have a lot of experience in this realm too, is the injury front. Like I started to accumulate injuries. Like I said, I've torn everything from my nose to my toes. And it's true because in large regard, my competitions on the calendar were pre-planned for me, right? When you compete at international level, you compete provincial in the fall, nationals in the winter, international in the summer, and if you want to hold to those timelines, those competitions don't flex, right? It's not like you sign up for a local meet 12 weeks out from now, you know, whenever you feel like doing it. It's like, well, whether your quad decides to hang on the bone or not, if you want to compete at that uh, meet, you got to be ready to go and train through some discomfort to be ready for that regardless. And I stepped over the line more times than I can count. I like to say to my clients, I flew too close to the sun, yep. right? Um and and that's that's what I did. And and I accumulate injuries doing so. But that's not to say that, you know, that is in my kind of specific context. But I don't know if you have any, I'm sure you have no, I, I think I think the mention of context is very important because you know, I mean, the first thing that pops into my mind is that Danielle never used to see you and now she sees you all the time. And I cannot believe you guys are still together with all that. We are good, man. <laughs> She's a I saint. have an angel. 
an angel for a life. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the next is, is the context here. So you mentioned competing at the highest level has nothing to do with health, which I completely agree. And this is important for us as coaches to recognize that the definition of the highest level varies from individual to individual. We can speak about, you know, at an absolute level, the highest level is best in the world, but the highest level for a single father of three kids or, you know, a, a family who maybe has financial difficulties, their highest level is relative to their situation and relative to what they're able to give. So an understanding here of, of trade-offs that need to be made. And every time you take a step up that ladder of absolute performance, there's an inherently larger trade-off that needs to be made in some other area of your life. And part of what we do as coaches, having been through these experiences of our own, and now stepping into these new ones is understanding the, the spectrum of that highest level performance, understanding the trade-offs involved so that we can actually come back to our clients and say like, okay, you're saying you want to achieve X, but in your life, you're dealing with A, B, and C that you cannot change and that you value greatly. I'm telling you right now that your pursuit of X is going to compromise A, B, and C. Are you willing to make that compromise? Yes or no. And then we guide them forward with that. But we wouldn't be able to have those conversations unless we knew what those trade-offs are. Yep. And essentially our transitions of our own athletic endeavors have followed our desires to either make or not make those trade-offs. Yeah. But now we're so wildly self-aware of those trade-offs. And yeah. that's what you spoke to with the, we are, we always experiment on ourselves first. Like most of the injuries I've had or the setbacks that I've had in any capacity are from me intentionally flying too close to the sun. I, I, I broke myself practicing on myself so that I never put, I would never apply that same risk profile to my clients. Is that necessarily our best decision-making over the course of time? Uh, you live and learn, right? We we are athletes as well. And we all weren't always maybe the, you know, stoic level of coach that we are now after 15 years in the game, right? Oh yeah. It takes a lot of time to build that level of maturity. But I think, I think this is a fantastic segue into, you know, the idea that you, you put forward of the working athlete. And this is like 99% of the people that are going to come to us for coaching uh, or that are wanting to pursue having a coach are going to have full-time jobs. They're going to have life uh, responsibilities outside of that, whether it be, you know, family, children, things like that, but they still want to pursue their version of highest level performance. And, you know, maybe you could go into, you know, the concept of the working athlete and maybe what that entails and how you address it with them. Yeah, no, that's a great point. Um, yeah, for, for the context of like our previous discussion, when I was talking about at the highest level, well, your guest last week, the, the highest level is relative, right? Like look at your guests on this podcast last week, Ed Cohn, the guy I'm following yeah. up. That's the greatest, that's the highest level ever versus yeah. the highest level right now versus the highest level in your region versus, you know what I mean? Like yeah. you can really parse it up. And, you know, with respect to my clients, the perspective I give is like, I look at the highest level as the highest level of the individual. I, I really look at coaching as an N equals one, as in a sample size of one. We coach mm -hmm. an individual, not a norm, not a population, not an average. You coach an individual. So the highest level is the highest level that individual could theoretically achieve on balance, all variables being perfect. Basically, the highest level is I want to get to a point where the rate of change and progress diminishes substantially. That's the highest level where it takes disproportionate inputs of effort for the 1% improvement, right? That's competing at the highest level. That's, that's pushing yourself to whatever is close to your peak potential. Now, your peak potential, all commitments, you know, exonerated versus your peak potential in your current situation with a mortgage and the two jobs and three kids under four, 
it is very different. And that approach needs to look very different. It needs to be scaled, not just to the individual, but to the individual in line with their current life circumstances, right? That's and that's why cool. even if an athlete, a competitive one especially, is capable of self-coaching, if they're in a transient environment where their situation is often in flux, having a second set of eyes, even if they could successfully do it themselves, mm -hmm. is helpful just because, you know, they need to sort of, you're not always a very honest narrator of your own life in your own situation. You, It's sometimes helpful to allow someone else access to the gas pedal and the brake pedal, right? And that's at the simplest, in the simplest way, that's what coaching is. When it comes to a working athlete, I think I can speak to this being a guy who was on a very high burn career and trying to scale a corporate ladder for the better part of a decade while doing a side hustle, which became a full-time pursuit, which is now coaching while competing at my highest level, right? Um, I was doing all of those things concurrently and spoiler warning, I burnt out, right? At a certain point, in it. I never had like a, you know, acute you know incident but i naturally found myself away from powerlifting that's how we let off this whole conversation which is that was my course correction to burn out from powerlifting to burn out from a high burn career that wasn't necessarily like serving me at that time but for most of you you're going to occupy some kind of a you know nine to five now i don't actually mean it as a nine to five right i got yeah. Clients that are police officers, paramedics, miners that work two kilometers underground, all of the above on rotating schedules. That's not a nine to five, but that's still a, when I say a nine to five, I mean, you have commitments outside of life or outside of training, right? right. And, and that's why I call it the working athlete. Like for the overwhelming bulk of us, even you and me, Paul, coaching is a dedicated hobby. That's what I, how I explain it to my clients, Right. This is a dedicated hobby. And so it needs to fall in line on the appropriate scale of the priorities of your life, right? Um, and so that just means we need to work to make fitness and nutrition fit your life and not the other way around. That is like, and, and I'll pause there and let you kind of, uh, you know, give it a couple of thoughts because I, I'm going to, we can go as deep as you like in this topic. It's one that like, I mean, I, I spent a decade living it, so I could talk it for the better part of a decade, but the idea of fitness fitting your life and not the other way around really is one of the foundational axioms uh, of, of this topic as a whole. I think that's a foundational like conversation that we as coaches need to have with all of our clients, because regardless of what the goal is, if if you want to do this for as long as possible, sustainability is the thing that we look for the most. And when you're flexing your life around nutrition and training, which there are times where that's required, right? Like, so you're in a bodybuilding prep. Life happens around nutrition and training. Yeah. But that's an acute timeline. And it's not something that you're going to sustain or adhere to long-term. Yeah. But if we're talking about the majority of our clients, they want to achieve a level of fitness and they want to maintain that level of fitness over the long-term. Well, if that's the case, then lifestyle needs to be the the predominant factor surrounded by nutrition and training. So how do we have that conversation where, you know, I, I can, have, I have a perfect example that I'm dealing with a client right now who is dealing with, with depression. She's gone through a transition in her life and she's depressed. Well, she still loves training. She enjoys the time when she's in the gym, she's not depressed, which is something that we all can empathize with, right? The two hours that you're in between those walls, nothing else matters and you're, you're in flow. But if you're pouring out all of your recovery potential on this, this mental health stressor that's occurring outside, your ability to accumulate strength and benefit from the training that you're doing is pretty much impossible, especially at the dosage that it would require for you to train and make those, those gains. So having conversations with clients around how outside factors are influencing what we're actually trying to do in the gym and reworking it to make sure that, hey, the gym should work with us. It shouldn't be something that we have to kind of accommodate for outside of the gym because Unless you are a professional athlete or potentially someone who works from home and can make their own schedule, like I don't even fall into that category because a lot of the time I don't make my own schedule. 
um, it's just an impossibility. So this is where, and Francesco is the one who, who worded it so nicely for me. It was like, we need to respect values and challenge beliefs. So we have to respect the values of this individual and the responsibilities that are placed on them and build something that works around those and still gets us to that end result. Yeah, I think that like the front end kind of thought here is that we have to have very frank and sometimes uncomfortable discussions with clients or sometimes even friends uh, who are trying to pursue something X. I don't can't tell you how many times I've been at the water cooler at the office and someone tells me that they're you know, trying to achieve X lofty goal with nowhere near the basis for it, where I can just shrug and smile and tell them good luck, or I can put a coach hat on for a minute as somebody who's, you know, a, a, a voice of reason and, and an educated voice in that realm to tell them, okay, here's why, here's the pain points you might run into there, right? Because, and I've had two overtimes over the course of, you know, nine years coaching, occasionally, you know, turn away a handful of prospective individuals who, you know, I believed just after trying very hard to, you know, talk timelines with them and, and goal setting, it just didn't fit. And that's because it's all about rate of change. In my opinion, stability or sustainability of any approach is about, you know, how quickly things, whatever variable you're acting upon is changing on a week over week, month over month basis, right? You can think about it like, dieting is the simplest example, right? Yep. So you start at 200 and you go to 150, you've now lost 20% of your body weight, right? That is a huge, both deviation from the set point. So it's a deviation from the norm that makes that new body weight very difficult for you to immediately maintain. You'd probably be better off to do that process slower over multiple phases, spending time cruising along the way and maintaining there before you get to that endpoint, because you'll be much more likely to maintain that endpoint relative of leanness, right? The same goes with any pursuit, whether it be a body fat goal, whether it be a muscle gain goal, uh, whether it be a strength pursuit, you know, it's about having, and this ties in nicely actually to the dual athlete discussion is having a long range plan always laid out with clients and prospective clients before even the time of onboard to be like, Okay, this is how we can make this sustainably when you zoom out, fit your life cycle. Yes, there will be moments in time where you need to dig, where we need to be in periods of caloric restriction, where we need to push the boundaries of training recovery, right? And those sorts of things. But let's make sure those are times of year that are thought out well enough in advance that they they're times of year that are historically not very high burn for your kids or your job, right? that you can give yourself a higher level of effort, an elevated potential for a short term, because as you know, Paul, the process of getting there and the process of staying there require two very different inputs of effort. Um, so it's all about the rate of change, right? Like there will be moments where the rate of change exceeds something that we could do long-term, but when you zoom out and look at the rate of change over a global perspective, over a calendar year, it averages out to something far more sustainable. So it, it's just all about the speed at which, which is speed is a rate of change. You're trying to get somewhere, in my opinion. It makes sense. And like the way you explained it is perfect because there's a lot of analogs that you can, you can look at in terms of when well, we periodize our training, right? There's off seasons and there's meat preps. Uh, you know, we periodize our, you know, hypertrophy blocks and fat loss blocks uh, we, we naturally periodize our lives. You know, let's, let's take the context of a, of a parent. You're probably not going to prioritize a goal that requires a ton of organization around your, uh, around your training while your kids are not in school or when they're on March break or, you know, and these are periods where as a coach, we're like, all right, well, let's deload March break. Let's deload you through Christmas break. Um, Let's do three days a week of training during the summer when you can be with your children instead of five or four or five days. Uh, maybe let's do a maintenance phase during the summer so you can actually enjoy some flexibility at barbecues and go on vacation. And these are all like, as you said, those will slow the rate of change. 
but changes can still be made. Sustainability is going to be different for each person because each person will have a different uh, capacity for sustaining a rate of change. The faster the rate of change, the more trade-offs inherent within that. And the funny part is that the term maintenance and what it applies is, is kind of a loaded term these days because totally. a lot of the clients who come to us want to achieve a level of fitness and then more or less maintain it. But they're not actually ever comfortable when it comes to the periods of time to maintain. And this could be the, one of the most obvious examples of this, because I think people are getting wise to this in the context of training. People are getting smarter to know that, uh, you know, deloads, for example, the most obvious period of more or less training, you know, maintenance or a period of intentionally treading water. That's what you're doing, right? Yeah. You're just hanging. And people get now in training that there's value to that. But nutrition, there's still an inherent dogmatic belief that you're all in or you're all out, right? Whereas it's not how it works in the sense that, you know, there are going to be periods of the year that I in flux with my clients, peaks and valleys in the stress that new training or the rigidity or the restriction that nutrition brings upon your life. Sometimes macros to the gram, calorie goals, full-blown tracking, those sorts of things are a necessary factor in the pursuit of achieving a certain rate of change and a certain end goal. Sometimes broad ass ranges, ballparking, you know, just having a calorie and protein goal, even less, not tracking altogether and eating intuitively might have a place in your calendar year based on your particular life circumstances, right? Like the, you, you probably, you know, I mean, scale that. Oh, we're back. Paused it. There we go. Uh, you know, you need way less training input to maintain than you do to grow. And so the same can be true on the nutrition front. You can give far less, you know, care and effort towards maintaining a physique than to grow, but people struggle when it comes time to actually put a maintenance dose into practice. But if you're, say, the kind of person that does a, you know, a semi-regular travel for work and you travel from a Monday to Thursday, right, those, and you have like client meetings the entire time, I'm speaking about somebody right now, Yeah. Uh, you know, working 14 hours straight and client dinners mostly every day, like, are you, is that a wise time to be in a, period of restriction, are you likely to achieve success? Probably not. Right. Um, and so you got to scale the expectation relative to the energy you have to put in it and understand that for large portions of a year, treading water is okay. Right. Especially if you're the kind of person who doesn't have timeline constraints and we can talk timelines, those who do have timeline constraints as well, like a timeline constraint would be a meet on the horizon, a competition on the horizon, a wedding, even on the horizon. Right. But if you're just the kind of person that's you're in a fat loss phase and you want to get to a certain look, like there is no harm in diet breaks, in refeeds, in periods where in a controlled way, you take a foot off the gas, allow for some restoration of psych deleterious psychological and physiological adaptations, but also just dedicate less of your day-to-day -day breathing, waking eyeballs open moments to it, right? It's okay. Like, Think about, you know, over a seven day period, say two of those days you were at a period of maintenance. You didn't, people think that somehow you're going backwards in that two day window when the reality is you just shrunk like the period of, you were just in a deficit for two days. And then it's like, there was just a blackout period for two days in your calendar. That's kind of how that worked, right? All it does is it extends the time horizon to your goal, provided that you don't make any choices in that two day window that undo what you did on those other five days. But how much does that resonate with what we hear from so many individuals, including clients, that the all-in or the all-out approach leads to the yo-yo of five days of great restriction, two days of overdoing it, undoing the progress of the last five. So it's, in my opinion, a super underrated skill to know how to tread water. And during COVID, I spent about a year very unmotivated to train before I, uh, you know, got full fledged back into the pursuit of bodybuilding, where I just kind of did a really good job of treading water, just training three days a week on a minimum dose, giving a minimum amount of effort towards nutrition, towards protein. And I just lost a step, but I didn't lose 10 steps. And it took so much less time to get my stride back when 
I decided I was ready to dig again. This is a big like pet peeve of mine with the research on nutrition and training um, is the idea of maintenance. And even, even the word maintenance to me kind of isn't appropriate. And the reason I say it's a limitation with the research is because research is time limited. And any long-term studies, you get less and less quality data and less and less quality control. The idea of maintenance essentially implies that no changes are happening, right? No negative changes or no positive changes. But let me put it to you this way. We have six months. You eat at quote unquote maintenance calories. So within a, within a range, you eat an appropriate amount of protein Potent, let, let's, for the sake of this argument, say we eat in a protein surplus. So you're above 1.2 grams per pound. And you train your balls off. I would be very hard pressed to believe that you wouldn't gain muscle and lose fat. Regardless. And, 100%. Regardless and, of your training age. And past a certain point. Now, for those who might listen to this, who are 250 pounds lean on special sports supplements, we're not talking to you. Your what requires to maintain that level of exotic muscularity is different. But for everybody else, which is 99% of people, 99.9% of people on the planet, mate, they forget that maintenance is a range. The body is like good at auto-regulating its own internal processes, which are way more complicated than you think. I'm talking about the speed of hair growth, the speed of nail growth, shit like that, right? It regulates those things to make sure that 50, 100 calorie dis daily discrepancies come out in the wash. And there isn't really a scale weight change to those. On top of that, like you said, even at a maintenance training volume and effort, just a little bit of care towards something like protein intake and training intensity will yield an adaptive response, just a slow rate of change response. But when exactly. you zoom that out over really long time scales, you will see a net improvement. And not only will a recomposition effect of some amount of muscle gain happen, eventually you will put yourself in what I like to call a functional deficit. If you do enough recomping and you zoom out enough that the time scale of a maintenance phase gets long enough, typically it doesn't happen because we like to constrain our maintenance periods to shorter phases between dedicated bulking and cutting. But say you did that, say you did a nine month maintenance phase, right? You have now put on probably enough lean tissue that what used to be your maintenance is now a somewhere between 150 and 200, 300 calorie deficit, depending on the size of your body, right? So you now actually have gained some muscle and lost weight, creating a functional deficit until that deficit shrinks again to zero. You lose enough fat that it, you find maintenance again. Hence, when I say maintenance is a range, your body is always doing that calculus. It is always doing these micro balancing acts. But when you zoom out over enough long time scales, you can make net zero body weight changes that result in a huge difference in the physique. It's like, look at this the exact same way you would look at like a financial investment. Okay. So if I'm making, if I'm eating at maintenance and I'm training hard and I'm monitoring my protein and for lack of a better word, like by definition, I am at quote unquote maintenance. If I put on 0.5 kilos of muscle or sorry, sorry, 0.5 of a kilo. That's not making sense. 50 grams. Uh -huh. okay. If I put on 50 grams of muscle okay. a month and I do that for 10 months, I just gained 1.1 pounds of muscle. Yep. Do that and for 20 months. I gained back. a kilo. Yeah, all with a loss of fat because my calories are equated. Yeah. And that might seem ridiculous, but a pound more muscle and a pound less fat will make a significant change in the way your physique looks. It'll and, also improve your health and it'll yeah, also improve yeah. the way you feel. And, and so for those trying to maximize their gains, we're not talking to you in this part of the conversation. Please refer back to the maximizing your gains earlier part of the discussion, right? Right. For those trying to maximize progress, yes, don't spend 10 months in maintenance. We're not like we're we're not talking to you. But for the mother of three who basically maintenance is all that they can give us, 
we're talking to you because you could be pleased 10 months later down the road with the net change of two pounds of tissue and three pounds of fat loss, yielding a five pound visual difference that only shows up on the scale of one pound of difference, right? Like, so for the people who more or less maintenance plus or minus 20% is all that they can give us, right? Those are the people for which maintenance expectations can sometimes exceed what you thought you might otherwise be able to achieve and why the term maintenance itself is potentially a loaded term. Couldn't agree more. All right. Coming up on our timeline, let's get some quick hit questions in here. The first quick hit question, when you crack an egg, do you crack it on a flat surface or on the corner of the pan? On the corner of the of the countertop. Is that weird? No. Okay. Chefs do it on a flat surface though. So just watch that. Um, I'm certainly not a chef. Like I said, angel of a wife. <laughs> <laughs> if you could only listen to one band for the rest of your life, it would be. Oh, that's painful. Uh, I'm an emo kid at heart. I never grew out of it. Um, the main the okay a very small arizona emo band or a day to remember is the current okay band. fair um five dinner guests dead or alive who are they goodness i know right stephen hawking all right is that super nerdy that's right up. It there. is, but I feel like the like he's very intelligent, but I feel like the conversation would be painstakingly slow. Yeah, well, fair. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I'll allow it. You know, I'm a nerd, so I, I will certainly accommodate that. Uh, oh, this is going to be a weird cross section. A very popular photography YouTuber named Peter McKinnon, who okay. you may or may not know of, uh, a a guy basically learned photography through uh, and never met him. He's actually a Canadian dude based out of Newmarket oh. with like 6 million YouTube subscribers. Seems like a fascinating dude. Seems like we get along. That's two. Uh, you, number three. Oh, thank you. And just throw that in there. I know. I appreciate it's, it. it's a gratuitous one. Yeah. Um, I've already broken bread with Ed Cohn, so I'm not going to say Ed Cohn, but... Uh, I feel like there has to be a, oh, Ronnie Coleman has got to put a bodybuilder on there, yeah. right? How is this for a dinner table? We got photographers, we got, uh, Even we have intelligent astronom astronomers or cosmologists, and we, we now have Ronnie Coleman. And uh, Whoa, this is a toughie. I'll plead the, I'm going to just say Danielle, my wife, because I knew uh, that was coming. It would be wrong to not fill the gaps. <laughs> I'll be sleeping on the couch if I don't. Yeah. Um, last question. It, Who do you want to see on this podcast next? The caveat being you have to help me get them on the podcast. These are good and the toughest questions. Mm -hmm. uh, hmm. Who could we get on the podcast? Ed Cohn said I should have Kirk Karwaski on the podcast. Oh, Captain Kirk. Uh, we've had a good amount of strength representation already, I feel like. Mm -hmm. So I think a little bit of the physique space representation would be very good. I'm yeah. going to say John Jewett. I have no ability to help you get him on the podcast, but damn would I listen to that one. Okay. I'll make it happen somehow. I'll have my people call his people. Good luck to your people. I'll have pork chop I mean, he's totally like, I don't know. He's just a, he is a top three mind currently in the intelligent bodybuilding space for me. And I, uh, I like the, I like the sounds that come out of that guy's mouth more for often sure. than not. His, his course was phenomenal. I did it. And, and even like down to the organization of the course was, was really good. Yeah, he, he's a he's a bodybuilder that talks like a nerdy consultant, which is all kinds of resonating with yours truly over here. Well, he's a he's a registered dietitian, so he's very very highly educated. 
He is. Yeah. Yeah. And you can tell, but he just, the way he presents himself, the way he presents information, it's like he has, he has put thought to what someone's concern or counterpoint might be before he even opens his mouth, which is for sure the way I like to educate. Mike, where can people find you? You can find me on Instagram, first name, last name, Michael Provinza, the same. Everywhere is just my name, first and last. Uh, I recently started a YouTube channel where I'm documenting my own road to the stage. Then subsequent to this prep, we'll be documenting my road to an attempted IFBB Pro Card. And all of it is through the lens of an education first kind of mindset. So there is a lot of, there's already a couple videos up there but I'm looking to post about a once a week frequency. I've already got 50 videos uh, on the horizon, like, like in terms of uh, video topics that are, are going to be going over the remainder of this year and early next year. Uh, so give that a watch. There should be, you know, a ton uh, of good content for free up there. And if, you know, you like the, the words that came out of my mouth or some of it resonated, or you think I might be the kind of person you might want to learn from, masterathletic.com to inquire about working with me. Sounds great, man. Thank you so much. Everyone, please like, share, and subscribe if you made it this far. And we'll catch you next time. Cheers.